Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 4. As you're turning, let me um, report to you uh, that this past week, uh, my children did sit down with me and make me watch Finding Nemo. <laughs> and so you're probably going to hear a lot more sermon illustrations from that great movie. Uh, it is our great joy and privilege to continue in our series in Philippians, a glorious book as we come to these last passages. Hopefully they are passages that are familiar to you, but they are passages that speak so uh, keenly to where we are as a society now, where we are as the church. We need them so desperately. Hear God's word. I'm going to read Philippians 4 verses 2 through 7. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As many of you know, I was on sabbatical this summer, and one of the things that we did on sabbatical was to move into a new home. And so, as many of you have done, uh, I did a lot of hanging of things uh, on ceilings and on walls, uh, fans and pictures and towel bars and towel rings and, and lots of hooks. Uh, all of those little jobs and projects are uh, very satisfying to see something that was not done. All of a sudden, it's done, it's complete, it works, it holds. Uh, but there's something particularly wonderful about seeing a pile of stuff, right, that's in a, on the floor or, or in a convenient place, uh, all of a sudden be put on hooks and so beautifully hang for at least a few minutes until someone comes and takes off the hooks and doesn't put it back on the hooks, right? Well, the Bible gives to us hooks also, biblical theological hooks on which we can organize and arrange and better understand different aspects of our God and of his truth and the story of salvation and the glorious gospel that has saved us. Now, you probably know more of these hooks than you realize. Sometimes we might call them grids or, or, or lenses through which we see certain things or, or frameworks, uh, but here are a few of them. Uh, there's the hook that the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us about what the scriptures principally teach. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Uh, there's the hook in the Heidelberg Catechism that, that summarizes so beautifully our experience as Christians, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh, there's the framework that we see in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 uh, that we can apply to all of life creation, fall, redemption. If we bring in Revelation 20 and 21, we could add restoration as well, consummation. All of life can be understood and, and interpreted through that, that grid, that framework. 
There's the great summary of the gospel that we saw even in chapter 3 of Philippians, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, There's Jesus' summary of God's law, the, the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. All these hooks help us to grasp and to live out God's word. There's the summary in 1 Corinthians 13 of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. I love the summary that we see in the book of Titus. When Paul says, what does it mean to to be a Christian, to live as a Christian? It means to know the truth, to grow in godliness, and to go show the goodness of God in good deeds of mercy and justice and righteousness. Well, there's another hook that I want us to particularly focus on this morning. We, We find it in Genesis 3, and it helps us to make sense of how sin has alienated us and deformed us, and how the gospel transforms us. We might call it a a hook, a framework of broken, shattered pieces, P-E-A-C-E-S. You see, when Adam sinned, mankind lost peace, lost peace with God, lost peace within, lost peace with other people, lost peace with the creation. You remember Genesis 3, how Adam, after doing what God had forbidden him not to do, he hid from God. He experienced guilt and and shame and fear within. He blamed Eve for what he had done. He entered into a season for the rest of his life and, and all mankind of marital struggle and strife. He was forced to toil for his food. By the sweat of his brow, the ground would grow thorns and thistles and weeds. But the Bible reveals to us through its unfolding that salvation, God's grace to us, is in fact a removal of these alienations, a restoration in Jesus Christ of the shalom, the peace in all four of these areas. When we believe in Jesus, we have peace with God. We are reconciled to him. And out of that peace vertically, we have peace within And we have peace horizontally with other people. And ultimately, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation that groans will one day be set free from its slavery to corruption. There will be no more curse. And we will be able to enjoy without any lack of peace in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which peace dwells. We will enjoy all God's good gifts. Now, in our text this morning, hopefully, again, a familiar text to you, I want you to see that Paul highlights each one of those pieces, each one of those restorations of peace in some way. First, we have peace with God. You notice the multiple mentions in verses 2 and 4 and 7 that we are in the Lord. We are in Christ Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus Christ this morning, you are no longer without hope and without God in the world. You are no longer separated from God because of your sin, but rather you are living in a vital union through faith in Jesus Christ. And that means, as verse 3 tells us, your name is recorded in the book of life. No longer are you at war with God, but you have been reconciled to him. You are at peace with him through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, as we see here in verse six, you have access to him in prayer. God hears you. He delights for you to come to him in prayer as a child delighting, a father delighting to hear his children pray to him. 
So we have peace with God. We also have peace with those around us, or at least in Christ Jesus, we ought to. We can have peace with one another. You notice here, Paul calls out Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They are somehow disagreeing, somehow in conflict with one another. We don't know exactly what it was about. Uh, It was obviously a public conflict. If Paul in this letter calls them out publicly, perhaps he had heard about it from Epaphroditus, the messenger from the Philippians to Paul in prison. And here he he calls Euodia and Syntyche to, to live at peace with one another. You remember Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men, and especially, we might add, all believers. Believers, note how Paul says to them that they are co-laborers. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel, with Clement and the rest. They're fellow workers. They're fellow sharers in the blessing of salvation. All of their names are written in the book of life. And therefore, Paul says, if we have peace with God, we must have peace with one another. God has established peace, whether we think of across ethnic lines or whether we think across economic lines, whether we think across cultural lines, political lines, God calls his people to live at peace because he has established peace with us. So we see peace with God. We see peace with those around us. We, we even see perhaps an allusion uh, to the peace that will return to the entire cosmos when Jesus Christ returns. There, that language uh, in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. It's possible that Paul there is referring to what we saw at the end of chapter 3, how we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that blessed hope of a new body on a new earth. That changes how we live even now, both in regard to our relationships, to regard to our own personal lives, in regard to even the earth itself. So Paul here is alluding to that restoration of peace that will come in all creation. But this morning, with the time remaining, I want us to focus particularly on the peace within, the inner peace that those who belong to the Lord can and ought to experience. And I want you to see three things about this peace that is so beautifully portrayed for us here in this passage. First, I want you to see the full beauty of this inner peace. Secondly, I want you to see when God wants us to experience it. And thirdly, I want you to see how we can experience it day by day. First, consider the full beauty of this piece. Look at this bouquet, this arrangement in front of me here on the table. Uh, These flowers, each one of them could be in a vase with a group of flowers just of of their own kind, right? You could have, you know, the white flower, the orange flower, the blue flower, not as many flowers this Sunday, right? But you could have all those flowers by themselves in a vase, and they would be beautiful. And you would admire that on your table or on uh, your, you know, your desk. But they don't just send us one flower, do they? They arrange them. They they bring multiple flowers in. They make a bouquet of, of multiple flowers. Therefore, it's even more glorious, even more beautiful. Well, you see, that's what's going on here in this passage. That's how Paul pictures the inner life of the Christian God's peace, his shalom in the broadest sense, comes to us in this bouquet of joy and reasonableness or gentleness and dependence and gratitude and contentment. 
Look again at verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when, when difficult or undesirable circumstances come our way, or when it looks like they might come our way, our natural tendency is to grow sullen and irritable, to, to be downcast and grumpy and demanding and defensive, to be fretful and prayerless and discontented and ungrateful. And so Paul here in this passage commands us to rejoice. Twice he says it, rejoice, rejoice. And then he commands us to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. This word reasonableness can also be translated gentleness in the sense of a self-effacing willingness to yield up our rights, to bear abuse at the hands of others. And Paul goes on to forbid those respectable sins of anxiety and worry and fretfulness. And he commands in its place prayer and gratitude. He promises to us God's peace that will guard our hearts, garrisoning our hearts, this inner stillness to guard us in the midst of the raging storm so that we are, as it were, the eye of the hurricane. You see, all these graces go together, and they are the more beautiful as they go together. You need them all. And so often, the, the lack of one leads to the lack of the others. Think about it. When we are joyless, it is hard to be gentle, isn't it? It is hard to treat others with a kindness and with a willingness to yield to them. Joylessness so often can be traced back to a, a spirit of anxiety or fear within our hearts. If we're consumed with our own circumstances and if we are obsessed with ourselves, if we're trying to, to be king over our future, then yes, we will be anxious because we cannot control the future. We will not be dependent on the Lord or content with what he has provided for us or thankful for what he has given us. We'll always be focusing upon what we want and don't have or what we have and don't want. You see, joy and gentleness and peace and gratitude and dependence and contentment, they go together in this beautiful bouquet of grace. So that's the first thing I want you to see this morning. But the second thing is this. When does God want us to experience this inner peace with all of its various parts and aspects? Well, the answer that Paul gives us here is perhaps shocking and surprising and, and off-putting maybe, because the answer is this, all the time. Look at what he says, rejoice always. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your requests be made known to God. And maybe you're tempted to think, Paul, you don't have a clue. You don't understand how hard my life is. You don't understand the things that I'm having to go through. And of course, the answer is, well, actually, he does, right? He's writing this letter from a Roman prison, right? He, he's already told us in the letter that he is facing execution, that there are other believers, believers, professing believers in Jesus Christ who are seeking to do him harm, to cause him distress in his imprisonment. 
Paul knows what it means to suffer. And so do the Philippians to whom he is writing. As we've seen in this letter, they are a people with enemies. They are poor people financially. Remember how Paul speaks to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They're an impoverished people. They were a people who were deeply concerned for the apostle Paul and now for their friend and messenger Epaphroditus, who they had heard was sick with Paul. And so we cannot disregard these words of Paul and say, well, Paul's just out of touch with reality. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know what it means to live life in this world. God is making us to be a people of joy and peace and gentleness in every circumstance. No matter how bad things might be or might look like they could become. I like the way that Ed Welch describes anxiety. He says, anxiety is a prediction that bad things are going to happen to something important to you. It's a prediction. It's, it's your mind coming up with all manner of things that might happen. When circumstances start to go against us, or sometimes even when things are going great, our mind tends to make these little movies inside of all the bad things that could happen or all the good things that won't happen. And we play these movies and we play them on rerun and we watch them again and again and again and they consume our thoughts. And there's a sense in which, yes, it is possible that those things might happen. It is possible that things are happening right now. Cares and concerns that are real, that tempt us every day to worry and to be anxious. Often, as it was when Jesus spoke the words there in Matthew chapter 6, often it's our financial situation. It's no accident that Paul's going to follow these words with words about being content in all circumstances. There's more month and bills than there is money. You wonder how you're going to save for your kid's college tuition. You wonder how you're going to save for retirement or if, ever, if you'll even be able to retire, perhaps. Maybe it's an unexpected car expense. That seems to have been something that often leads me to anxiety and worry. Right? Maybe for you, it's a struggle with a situation at your job. Perhaps it's a relationship in your life that has gone sour. Maybe it's a child who has rebelled and rejected the Lord and you watch them making horrible choices and suffering the consequences. And your heart is tempted to worry. Perhaps your brand of anxiety is an anxiety about health or the health of a parent or the health of a child. If COVID has taught us anything, it is how prone we are to worry, how easy our hearts go to anxiety. Perhaps your anxiety manifests itself as you watch the news and you read the internet and you see all the things that are going on out there that you didn't even know about until you turned on the news and your heart is anxious. Ecclesiastes 1.18 puts it like this, increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And maybe you feel that but see, turning off the TV or the internet, while it may be something you need to do, it is not going to instantaneously, in and of itself, give you peace. And we have to say this as well. Peace is not carelessness. Right? It's not indifference or cynicism or apathy. God does not care, command us not to care right? or not to be good stewards of the concerns that he has put in our life. 
Rather, he commands us not to be anxious, not to worry about our life. You see, it's interesting, this word that Paul uses for do not be anxious, even in the Greek, it's a, a word that can refer to sinful anxiety and worry or to appropriate concern. We even have an example here in this book, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, when Paul speaks of Timothy and he says that, that he has no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. It's the same word here that Paul is saying, don't be anxious. Now, when he says it about Timothy, he's commending Timothy for being concerned, anxious. Same Greek word, and yet a different nuance, a different meaning. We have many words in English like that, don't we? Different nuances. And we see it in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, when Paul speaks of the body of Christ, that he says that he's composed the body in such a way that the, the members may have the same care for one another, the same concern for one another. Or Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 11, when he says that, that there is daily pressure upon him of concern for all the churches. The ESV translates it anxiety, but Paul is not confessing sin. Rather, he is acknowledging his suffering as a gospel minister. You see, we are supposed to care and to be concerned for the things in our life. All those things that I was just mentioned, whether your finances or your health or your relationships, your work, all of those things are appropriate opportunities for you to exhibit concern. The Lord wants you to be concerned about those things. But what he doesn't want is for you to allow a genuine concern to become an ultimate concern. He doesn't want you to allow this genuine care to become an over-care, an over-concern. We will always have cares and concerns that will tempt us to worry, and it is the worry and the anxiety that we are called to put to death. Isn't it interesting when Paul tells us in verse 7 that, that the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, if our hearts and minds still need to be guarded and garrisoned, even after we have done what Paul calls us to do, don't you see that that implies that there are still fearful and anxiety-producing circumstances all around us? We have concerns. There will always be requests that God wants us to present to him. There will always be cares and anxieties that he wants us to cast upon him, 1 Peter 5, 7. And so that brings us to the last thing that I want you to see from this text if the when we are to experience this inner peace is all the time, because all the time we have cares and concerns, well, how do we experience it then? Well, Paul tells us, and he says to us, he teaches us to do two things that sound contradictory on the surface, but they're not. First, Paul says, you need to stop talking to yourself. And second, Paul teaches us, you need to talk to yourself. Now, what do I mean by those two things that sound opposite? Well, first, we need to stop talking to ourselves. That is, we need to stop talking to ourselves and start talking to God. Turn off those mental movies that we watch on rerun over and over and over again and pour out your soul to the Lord. Of course, yes, we need to think about the concerns of our lives, but how easy it is, in my own experience, to think instead of pray. Do you know what I'm talking about? You start praying about something and then you start thinking about it and you stop praying God wants us to pray, to talk to him. As my daughter reminded me this week, if you have time to worry, you have time to pray, to talk to him, to pour out your soul to him. Prayer, you see, is Paul's prescription for anxiety. God wants you to tell him what you want. 
Let your request be made known to him. Tell him what you don't want. He already knows it, doesn't he? Jesus tells us that in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't command us to pray because he's ignorant of what we want and need, but rather because he is a father who loves us, who cares for us. He knows what we need before we ask it. He wants us to unburden ourselves upon him, to pour out our hearts upon him so that he can carry all of our cares and anxieties. We are to leave the matter in his hand because he is utterly competent to handle it. I'm sure we've all had someone in our life who if we asked them to do something, we didn't have to think about it ever again. We knew they would do it. God is far more competent than that person that you just thought of. God is all powerful. And so he wants us to pray to him because prayer is acknowledging that we are not in control, but he is. Prayer is acknowledging that our circumstances are something that the all wise, all loving, all powerful God who never acts without purpose has ordained for our good. And so he calls us, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you because he alone can change your circumstances. Prayer is a confession of your dependence and of your helplessness and of your trust in him. And Paul tells us we must pray with thanksgiving. Why does Paul say this? Because he wants us to explicitly acknowledge that everything we have is a gift from a good and a generous God, an undeserved gift. We're to thank him for who he is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're to thank him for the forgiveness of our sins, even our sins of joylessness and anxiety and worry and fretting and harshness toward others and discontentment. And we are to thank him for how these circumstances are driving us to prayer, leading us closer to him. You see, as we focus upon what we already have from his kind hand, our eyes are taken off what we don't have or might not get. So stop talking to yourself and talk to the Lord. But Paul also teaches us here that we need to talk to ourselves. Yes, we need to, to think and, and plan for the future in light of the present. That's those plans and thinking about and talking about the future is, is a part of what this means. But, but what I'm talking about in particular here is, is Paul's implicit teaching to us that we need to be talking to ourselves, these glorious truths and glorious promises that we find here in this passage and throughout the scripture. Psalm 94 says, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations are my delight the comfort of God's word. And so we remind ourselves who we are in Christ. We remind ourselves that Jesus is near, not just in terms of time, he is going to return soon, but in terms of space, he is with us. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. We remind ourselves of the glorious access that we have to God through Jesus Christ, our great high priest in prayer. We remind ourselves of this glorious promise that his peace, a peace that is beyond human understanding, will guard and garrison our hearts in Christ. Even if God doesn't answer our prayers to change our circumstances or to give us what we think we want or need, God's peace will guard our hearts and our minds. And remind yourself who God is. Look down at verse 9. We didn't read it. But Paul says, that God is the God of peace. He's the God of peace. 
He is a God who is never slow and never in a hurry. He is a sovereign king. He's never fragile. He's never irritable. He's never sullen or grumpy or anxious himself. He's in control of all things. He works all things after the counsel of his will. He establishes peace with sinners through the blood of his son. And for all of those who are united to Christ, who are in him, he gives peace to us when we pray to him. We must talk to ourselves. And I would add, don't miss the fact that we need to talk to other people as well. Isn't it interesting? Back in verse three, that Paul asked this true companion, whoever it might be, who has labored side by side with these women, right? Who have labored side by side with Paul. He says, I want you to help them. You see, we are surrounded every day by people who are drowning in worry and anxiety. We are to speak a good word to them. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down but a good word makes him glad. The same things that you would speak to yourself, speak to one another, encourage one another, build one another up, pray for one another. How important is the body of Christ in times like these? You know, hopefully the story of Habakkuk. He was a prophet who lived in fearful circumstances. Babylon was attacking God had revealed to him that Babylon was going to win. He was going to have to stand and watch and wait. And so what does he do? He pours out his soul to God in prayer. And he speaks to himself the truths of who God is. Go again and read that short book. But here's how it ends. He writes this in a prayer. I heard and my inward parts trembled. He saw what was coming. At the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. But then he speaks to himself these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, if everything falls apart, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation always, as Paul says. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me to walk on my high places. Brothers and sisters, Habakkuk was a man just like us. He knew what it was, perhaps in an even more extreme way, to suffer. And yet his joy was in the Lord in the midst of his suffering. May the Lord grant to us an inner peace in all circumstances that flows out of our peace with him, that overflows into peace with others, gentleness and kindness. That is a witness to the watching world that there is a sovereign God who reigns supreme in control of all things, who enables us and grants us a peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for these rich promises, this beautiful picture that you have painted for us, these commands that though they seem so impossible, yet by your grace and your spirits working in us, oh Lord, you help us to rejoice, to be anxious for nothing. You draw us into prayer. 
You give us your peace. Oh, Lord, would you be at work in the midst of our congregation, our families, our own individual hearts. Do it, O Father, for your name's sake. Would you mold us and shape us after the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the midst of his distress and grief poured out his soul to you in Gethsemane. Lord, you cared for your son and you cared for us. Lord, we thank you for the gospel and we pray that you would help us to rest our souls in you, our refuge and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.